see all of you. Hope you're uh, having a good day so far. I want to welcome you if you're visiting here with us. I had to take off my interpreter hat and get back to the lesson hat. Clear my head. I can mess with your head in, in translating. But today I'm very, very excited about beginning our, our new series that we're going to do for the next about seven weeks because we've got some interruptions, some different things going on. But as you saw the, in the introduction, our, our, the title is uh, Big Church. And in no way, shape, or form are we saying that we are a big church, but rather in the next several weeks what we're going to be learning is how big is the scope of the church that Jesus wanted to see grow and thrive in our world today. And so today we're going to begin our series with the title, Opening Day. I know there were some Little League uh, baseball teams that had Opening Day yesterday. We're going to go back to the opening day of Christ's church. And we're going to see what happened during that day. And also, we're going to do a little history lesson about Christianity. And how, in many regards, the church got way off track. And we're going to see why. And so to begin, we're going to look at, you know, when you hear the word church, what comes to mind? What, what comes to your mind? And I'll almost guarantee that it's probably not what, and it's a far cry from what Jesus and the apostles started in the first century. And that's why we need this study. We need to know what Jesus' intention and focus was when He started His church. So we can refresh our mindset. First century Christianity. What was first century Christianity? It began as a movement. And obviously a very smart person said a long time ago, movements must move, right? If it's not moving, it's not a movement. And we have to ask ourselves, how about my faith? Is it moving? Am I moving my faith? And is our church moving? And if it is, then yes, that's what Jesus intended it to be. But if it's not moving, then we've maybe lost our way. It was not, in the first century, an institution. It, is, it, was not, it did not begin in tradition. Uh, there were no Bibles in the first century church. Uh, there were no buildings, and there was no hierarchical structure in the church. It was all about a simple idea that, unfortunately, we only celebrate once a year. And so today we begin a quest of, of returning back to what Jesus intended. The church was launched around an event in history, and that event was the resurrection of Jesus. It was also the testimony of eyewitnesses, not people telling a bedtime story. Once upon a time, this is what happened. These apostles were eyewitnesses to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. They saw it. They were there. They saw Him crucified. They saw Him buried. And then they went to the tomb the day after and saw the empty tomb. And then they saw Jesus resurrected, speaking to them as I'm speaking to you today. And that was what it was all about. And so today we're going to study also a little history about Christianity in the last 2,000 years. And I believe you're going to have a different perspective and a greater appreciation for 
this book that we have right here. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and, and lift up your Bible for me, if you would. Okay, raise it up. That's not your Bible. You're borrowing that Bible. That's okay, though. You can borrow a Bible. Today, you're going to appreciate this book a lot more. And if you didn't bring your Bible today, I want you to go home and find it. You know, find your Bible, get the dust off of it, and open it. Okay, open it, read it, because it's such a precious gift that we have, and we're going we're gonna to realize that today. So let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer and start our study. Father God, we are very grateful for the privilege that we have to study your word today. I thank you for every person that's here, and I pray that today you will touch our hearts, that you will help us understand the scope of your church, how wide, how high, how long is your vision. God, help us to get on board with your vision and see, God, what you want to do in our society. God, we see clearly that you are stirring our world. You are shaking nations. And I believe, God, that you are shaking these nations so that your gospel can go forth. Please help us to do our part and to grow our faith so that we will not be left behind, but rather we will be instruments here in the East San Gabriel Valley to help people know you. God, we love you. Be with us. Fill me with your spirit and bless all the needs that we have in our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. What's the goal of our series the next few weeks? The goal of our series is to begin to rethink about church. What is church? And it's also to redefine in our hearts what church is all about. And then, whether you're a part of it or not, it really doesn't matter. The church will continue to move, and you're going to see that in this study that we're going to look at. God keeps on moving. He'd obviously like you to be a part of it. He wants everyone to be saved and to be right with Him. But it's a choice. He's not going to force anyone to do anything that is not on their heart and on their will to do. Look at this word right here. Anybody understand what that word says right there? That is Greek. And why is Greek so important? Greek so important because it is the original language that was the New Testament was written in. The earliest transcripts of the Bible were written in Greek. I actually had the opportunity a number of years when I went to a, a, a university college student campus uh, conference, worldwide conference that was held in London, England. And a group of us had the opportunity to go to the, uh, the British Museum of History. And in this glass case, they had a parchment of the book of James. And it was a fragment. It wasn't the whole book of James, but it was carbon dated to about the year 60 A.D., if I'm not mistaken. And it was incredible because that's, that's just, you know, right around the time when the book was written, very close to the time that it was written. Some of the earliest transcripts, the New Testament, it's in its entirety, can be found and they were in the, the Museum of, of History there. I don't, I don't remember seeing those transcripts, but they were there. I remember the book of James. And that blew my mind. That's, that's just like, okay, I got the book of James and I can check what my Bible says, what that says in Greek. But I don't know Greek, but you can get someone who tra translates Greek. That's why it's so important. 
to understand Greek, and not all of us need to do, but that to know that we have the Greek in, in the, the Bible, the New Testament in Greek, is so significant because that's what the original intention was. So if we get a good translation of that, then we can know what was originally set. And we can go back to that. The Old Testament obviously was written in Hebrew. And we have very old copies of the Hebrew Bible, which is intense. But this word you see here is the Greek word called ekklesia. And that is a word in Greek that means an assembly or gathering or congregation. When you see the word church in the Bible, that's in Greek. When the Bible is written in Greek, that's the word that you see. You see ekklesia, which means congregation. When you think of a church, and when a lot of people think about church today, they think, well, I need to find a church. What do you think about? You think about a building. And those images you saw in the beginning of the video, we normally think, oh, there's a church. Without even understanding that was not the intention of the apostles or Jesus when Jesus, and we're going to see it in a passage, it was about the people. And we call this building a temple, but it's not in our vernacular, in our conviction, it's not a temple. God doesn't live here. You can't put God in a box because he's the Lord and the creator of the universe. How can he fit in this building or in any building? And so what happened, and this is important for us to know because this word and it being changed in a new translation affected the, the future of the church. And we're going to see that. When Jesus launched his church, it was a gathering with a simple idea and a clear mission and focus. In time, something terrible, terrible, terrible happened. It became something shameful. And all because of a misunderstanding of this word that we just looked at, church. Around the year 300 A.D., the word ekklesia that you just saw in Greek was changed. The word was interchanged to a word that the Goths used, which is this word, kirch. I'm not saying it in German. It's said a little different. Uh, I, I can't really do a good job with it. I tried, but I didn't. I would hurt the word pretty bad. But this word, and this is where we get our word, which is church, kirch. What does this word mean? And they exchanged ecclesia, congregation, gathering, for this word in the year 300 A.D. And guess what this word means? The Lord's house or a God's house. It doesn't necessarily have to mean the Lord. It means a God's house. So it changed from being a group of people to being a building. This is significant. Because it no longer was about the people, it was about a place. And something very terrible happened from that point on. This had a devastating effect on the church. From being an assembly of believers, it became about a place, a building. So you can no longer worship God, you know, wherever people gathered. You had to go to a specific place. And this is what happened. Whoever controlled the building controlled the church. Whoever controlled the building controlled the, the, the Scriptures. Whoever controlled the building 
controlled the people, and whoever controlled the building controlled the government. And the church became a very corrupt place. It became hierarchical. It was just like a government institution with different levels of leadership and powers. And it had an agenda, a very clear agenda, control. It became ritualistic, in some cases pagan, immoral, destructive, murderous, and unethical. Any of you that know a little bit of story or history about the medieval times or church history, you can read about it. We're going to just see a little piece today, but it was awful, an awful history. About a thousand years, which they called the Dark Ages. Very sad time. And much of it because of this word that was changed. In Acts chapter 17, and we need to be very clear on this, and this is what the Bible says about God and a building. Acts chapter 17 and verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in, the, everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by man. He is not, He cannot be contained in this building. You can't put God in a box. You can't put God in a compartment. And we try. You know, have you ever seen those little shrines? In Mexico, they're everywhere. Everywhere, on every street corner, you got these little shrines. And probably in Guatemala City, they got these shrines. And anytime somebody passes by that little shrine, they do the sign of the cross, like God's right there. You know, they'll pass by and continue on their sinful behavior. But for that little moment, that little instant, they get holy. Okay? God's in that box. Or they pass in front of a, a building and they think, okay, God's here. God's not there. And this is significant. And the Scripture tells us He doesn't live there. Where is God then? God is everywhere, but He's specifically with His people. Wherever His, His devoted saints, His disciples are together, it doesn't matter if they're in a field, or if they're in a home, or if they're in a schoolyard, wherever they are, guess where God is? That's what Jesus promised. I am there with you. So the only reason why this is a temple... It's not because of the building and of its beauty and the, and the stained glass in the back. That has nothing to do with it. In fact, we just leased this building. Okay? This is just a facility for us. Okay? The only reason we're here is because it's a meeting place. And the only reason why this building is holy is because we're here. Okay? And not that we're any better than anybody. It's not about us. It's about God and His mercy on us. We're going to look at this guy, and it was an incredible thing. You can't put God in a box. You can't stop him. And the church had a very tight grip on the availability of people being able to read this. In fact, prior to this time, I'm going to tell you about this gentleman here. Prior to this time, if you wanted to hear the Word of God, you had to go to a building, and you had to hear a priest read it to you in a language that you probably wouldn't understand anyway. And it was sad because you'd go to hear a message from God's Word and you couldn't understand it. And it was also manipulated and, and twisted for an agenda. And the, the doctrine of the church began changing. 
You know, a lot of people were scarred and are still scarred because of this background. And they were turned away from Christianity. Many historians think that's why the Muslim religion began, because the church that Jesus started had become so, so corrupt and so, so evil in many regards that people said, you know what, this is not of God. This can't be of God. So they started a whole new religion. But see, what will save us is going back to the Scriptures. So in the years of enlightenment, the Renaissance years, early 1500s, different men came on the scene, one of them being Martin Luther, and then this man. This is uh, William Tyndale. Smile for us, William, will you, please? He had reason not to smile. These were difficult times. William Tyndale was an author and a scholar. But most of all, he was a deep believer in God. And about this time in the early 1500s, the New Testament in its Greek form was out. And so his specialty, he was a linguistic, meaning he knew about seven or eight languages fluently, could translate accurately. And so he got a hold of a Greek New Testament pretty close to the, its beginnings, and started to read it and realize what I'm hearing at church is nothing even remotely close to what I'm reading here. And other men were doing the same thing. As you know, Martin Luther wrote his, his thesis to the Vatican in protest. And he translated the New Testament from its Greek to a German version. But this gentleman, William Tyndale, decided this is wrong. This is wrong that God's Word is being restricted from the people. So he made a goal, and he made it his life's mission. I want to translate the Bible from its Greek origin into an English Bible so that the common man can read it. And so he began translating the New Testament, and he became, because of that, a heretic, and a criminal in England. Because at that time, in the early 1500s, the, the, the church, the Vatican, still had a very tight grip on the government and controlled all the governing powers. So his agenda to do that was very much against the government. And so they declared him an outlaw, and he had to flee the country uh, as, as a criminal. And so he went to Germany... And thanks to a man, Gutenberg, who a hundred years before invented a very important machine. It's called a printing press. And he was able to go there, work on his translation, and begin printing the Bible. And he would send English Bibles, you know, as contraband back into England. Anybody got a small Bible? A little smaller than this. There you go. There's one right there. Let me see that Bible. See this Bible right here? This is about the size that William printed these Bibles. See, because before, a Bible was an enormous thing. In fact, the Bible was so big, you'd have to probably have a table this size in order to fit it. It was huge. Could you imagine walking to church with this huge, huge Bible? You couldn't carry it. William knew i got to make it this size. 
so that people can have it in their hand and they can read it for themselves and know what God is saying to them about their faith and the life that He wants them to live. See, because the, the church had added all these rituals and traditions and all these other things that you had to do to get saved, none of which are in the Bible. And so his mission became, I want to translate. He translated the whole New Testament and then began working on the Old Testament, Hebrew to English. He only got the first and second chronicles. It's thought that he had the whole thing. But he lost parts of it because he was on the run and he was always being sought out and, you know, basically running. Eventually, William was arrested. He was betrayed by a friend for money. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? A Judas of sort who betrayed him for money. And these were his last words. He was brought to trial, put in prison. He spent 500 days in prison in a cold dungeon. And when he was brought to trial, this was his famous quote that he told the priest in the trial. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the Scriptures than thou dost. This was his quest. This was his mission. And he had great faith. He wanted to put the Bible in people's hands. He was brought to trial and found guilty. In fact, because he was a scholar, normally they would take your head off and burn your body. But because he was a scholar, he was hung. And then his body was burned. Prior to them capturing him, anyone who was caught with one of his copies of the New Testament was arrested as a heretic and many people were burned alive. Because they possessed an English translation of the Bible, which was considered illegal. You think, man, those were dark days. You know, it wasn't that long ago in Latin America where it was rare for someone to have a Bible. In fact, when I served as a missionary in Bogota, Colombia, not everybody had access to the Bible. In fact, the church prohibited it. And in fact, if someone got a hold of the Bible, they would quickly tell you, you can't read that. You will surely make a huge mistake in your interpretation of it. So only a priest can read the Bible. And it was very sad. But, you know, our, part of our, our work was to bring about change in that respect. Because when people get a hold of the Scriptures, a relationship is begun. We're going to watch a short video about a summary of William Tyndale's life. William Tyndale's influence on the English-speaking world is unsurpassed. He not only gave us the Bible in our own language, he actually crafted a language which would become the most spoken in the world today. He was an exile, a hunted criminal, an outlaw, and did most of his work while in hiding. But he was never alone, not even in prison. His own writings testify that God's Spirit was there to comfort him daily. Whereas modern versions are often made by large committees with huge funds and supported by great publishers, William Tyndale made his translations of the Bible alone, hungry, cold, and persecuted in constant hourly danger of his life. It's an astonishing achievement, especially as he did it better than anybody else has ever done it. 
William Tyndale's desire was not that we would just know the Bible. He wanted us to know the God of the Bible. William Tyndale's greatest goal would not, was not that you would know the Bible, but that you would know God. How well do you know God? Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God's will for your life? You, straight from Him and His Word. Do you want Him to teach you how to live, how to grow your family, how to raise your children? You know, King James, shortly after Tyndale's life, there were different Bibles that were translated or brought together, but the King James Bible, probably the most circulated Bible of any English Bible, of any version of the Bible in the world, the King James Bible, they brought together many translators. And to show the quality of Tyndale's work, if you take the King James Bible, 83% of the King James New Testament is original Tyndale translation. One man. Accurately translated most of the New Testament. And his passion to help us have faith in God and His Word was astonishing. It's an inspiration for me. But you know what? i got to say it. Many of us take for granted the fact that we can go to Walmart and buy a Bible. It's right there. You want to know what God has to say to you? It's right there. You can read it. How much do you spend time reading your Bible? Let me tell you, this is the most important book that there is on the planet. It's it, because only this book will deal with eternity. All the other books are dealing with your time here on earth. This book has an eternal effect on your life and your soul and where you will spend eternity. And so that's why it's so significant. So we're going to, like I said, let's get back to opening day. This is one of the things that really bothered the church with Tyndale's work. Because what Tyndale did is he took that word kirch, remember the German word kirch? He took it out. And he put the original word, so whenever you read your Bible and you see church, guess what Wendell put in it? Congregation. And this, this, this was infuriated the church, because they knew the power of a building. And so, look what this translation that uh, Tyndale had. In, in Matthew 16, we read about Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, Okay, guys, what's the word on the street? Who do you say I am? And they said, Well, the people are saying that you are John the Baptist or one of the prophets that's passed. In fact, they thought that Jesus was the people. The talk on the street was that Jesus was a resurrected prophet. That's what they thought. And then he turned the question on them. Who do you guys say I am? What's your conviction? And look what Peter said. Simon Peter answered, just passed it, and you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, or you are the Messiah, the King. And then Jesus goes on to add in verse 18, I tell you that on this rock, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? Ecclesia. He put the word back. I will build my congregation. I will build my gathering of people. Not a building, but a group of people. 
And the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overcome it. And we've seen this play out in history. Nothing can stop God's church from reviving, from renewing, and from coming back to its original origin. There will be more Tyndales. There will be more men that, that go back to the Scripture and say, we need to get back to this and live this. And that's what we're seeing. And then in Matthew 28, verse 19, we hear Jesus saying the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. How big was the scope of Jesus' ministry? Was it about Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee? No. The scope of Jesus' work and mission and ministry for the church was go into all the world. Go all over the world. And we're going to see this. He repeats it again in Acts chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up in verse 7 and 8. He says here, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the planet or earth. How big is the scope? And this is where we get our title. Big Church. Here's a dilemma. One of the laws of physics. Anybody know one of the laws of physics? One of the big ones? The law of entropy. Is that right? Entropy. Is that right? Did I say it right? That means everything has a tendency to, to disperse, to spread. Right? Church law of gravity is just the opposite. Churches tend to shrink back on themselves. Become inward focused. It's all about us. It's all about me. It's all about our building. It's me, 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 us, us, us. That was never Jesus' intention. In fact, that we have to reverse the trend and we have to fight the tendency that we have to be inward focused. Clicks, groups, instead of having compassion and reaching out to people that need God, that need to know God, need to know His Word. And that the mission must continue. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I want you guys, and there was only 120 people here approximately, that were gathered to hear these words. That was the beginning. And could you imagine being in that 120? And Jesus says, I want this little section right here, this little section. You guys are in charge of going out to the whole earth. I said, Jesus, do you know how big the earth is? And in response, Jesus would say, you guys don't even know how big the earth is. Your earth, your world is the Roman world. It's so much bigger than that world. And yes, I want you guys to start this work. And I want you to be witnesses. Again, eyewitnesses. Not story bedtime. No, we're talking eyewitnesses. They were there. They saw it. So we're going to pick it up two weeks later. When Jesus prophesied about this day of power and this day of something miraculous happened, the Holy Spirit manifested itself on the apostles and they began to speak in languages. And it was the day of Pentecost and there were God-fearing Jews from every nation of the world present. And this, this miraculous power came on the apostles and they started speaking in different languages. It wasn't babble, it was languages. But some thought, hey, they're babbling. They said, no, no, no. Someone from that nation said, no, no, he's not babbling. 
He's speaking my language. He's speaking intelligible words. And they were, they were struck. They were like, wow, what's happening? These are Galileans. They must be drunk. And Peter stood up and said, no, we're not drunk. This was prophesied about in the book of Joel. There will come a day and the Spirit will come upon you and men will hear a message. And this will be a sign to you that the kingdom opening day is happening today. The first sermon, the first service of Christ's church. Peter stands up and delivers the very first sermon. And we get to hear it. You want to hear it? Let's go and listen. Peter started preaching. Acts chapter 2. And you just get bits and pieces. You can go and read it. Go get your Bible. You can read Acts chapter 2. But look what Peter says. Very first sermon of the very first day. Opening day. Men of Israel. And there were thousands of people there listening. Because that whole miraculous thing with the tongues and the languages drew a huge crowd. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through Him. And you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. Now this got a little personal. This was just two months after Jesus was crucified. So this wasn't like two years ago or a long time ago. This was pretty fresh. People, when they heard this, they go, Oh yeah, I knew a person who healed one of Jesus. Jesus healed one of my, his family members. He told me about it. I remember Jesus walking down the street. He, he did some amazing lessons taught in parables. I actually understood what he was saying. You mean he was the one? You mean He was the Messiah? The Christ? And we crucified Him? And it was our responsibility, our sins, that did that? Peter goes on in verse 24, But God raised Him from the dead, freeing Him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Him. Christianity was all about an amazing event. And this is where we've got to be careful. We think that Christianity is all about bettering our lives, right? If we follow Jesus' teaching, I'm going to get better. I'm going to be a better dad. I'm going to be a better husband. I'm going to learn how to live better. That's only the frosting. The actual cake, the meat of Christianity is about an event. It all revolved around an event. And that event was the resurrection. Because what the resurrection means is, is that... I can change my life. I can be set free. And I can also be resurrected with Jesus after I die. That's what's significant about the resurrection. It means change is possible. Regeneration is possible. Forgiveness of sins is possible. I can be different. I can live the way God intended me to live. That's what makes the resurrection so significant. So what is the point of the church? What is our focal point as a church? When you share your faith, it needs to be about the resurrection and opening a door for your life to be different. Then we pick it up in verse 32, same chapter. 
Peter continues his awesome first sermon on the first day, opening day of Christ's church. God has raised this Jesus to life and we all are witnesses of this what? Fact. We're not dealing in stories, hearsay, wise tales. We're dealing with facts. They were there when Jesus was crucified. They watched it. They saw it happen. They saw him die. They saw him buried in a tomb. They went to the tomb, saw the empty tomb, saw his, his, his dress, that he, the, the, the wrappings of his body lying there in the tomb. Then later, days later, they saw Jesus as I'm seeing you. And interacted with Jesus. They were witnesses. And there were literally hundreds of witnesses. That saw the resurrected Jesus. See Christianity is not based on some kind of story. It's based on fact. And there were eyewitnesses. Giving their testimony to it. Exalted to the right hand of God. He received power from the Father. The promised Holy Spirit that was poured out what you now see and hear. And then in verse 38, Peter continued and he replied, Start attending church regularly. Is that what he said? Is that how he brought home his sermon? No, this is what he said. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, this God who made... This Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were gripped with pain because they realized we've made a tremendous mistake. We let this happen. He was the one to come and we let this happen. And in fact, our sins caused it to happen. Brothers, what do we do? How can we make this right? Kevin read it, stole it. From me in, my, in his introduction. That's okay. It's good to hear it twice. Verse 38. Didn't say start attending, attending church regularly. What did Peter say? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Opening day. How do I get in? How do I get right? How do I become a true Christian? How do I get right with God? It's right here. This is how you do it. And the promise, he continued, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Who's the far off? Here we are. United States of America, East San Gabriel Valley, 2011. Here we are. Promises for me. Yes! You mean I can do this? I can have this. I can be a part of this. My children can have a part of this. This can be passed on generation to generation to generation like we saw in the beginning of our service. Wow. This isn't small. This is big. This is huge. And look what happened. We see here those who accepted, with many other words, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Kind of the same as we see today. What's happening in our world today? Moral decadence. You can't put, it's like trying to put makeup on a, on a, on a pig. 
You know, you can put a nice dress. You can decorate. It's not going to... It's still a pig. And that pig's going to go right back to the mud. We try to paint and put a nice look and spin on this world. It's awful. Look around. We see it everywhere. Politicians. Actors and actresses. Sports figures. Your neighbors. People all around you. Their lives are coming undone morally. We live in a same situation. Corrupt generation. We need to come back to a moral foundation of what's right. What God wants. What God has instituted. It's not up for man's discussion and opinion. We don't vote on the Word of God. You can change it and make it, oh, everybody agrees. We believe this is right. still wrong. It's still wrong and it will still destroy. Peter continued. Those who accepted, look what happened. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. They were baptized. Do you know how long it takes to baptize 3,000 people? It would be an all-day event. 3,000 people in one day. What's the scope of the church? That was opening day. What's the scope of Jesus' church? What does God want to do? He wants to do something big. But you know our problem? We struggle with... No, no, no. We've got to get organized. Could you imagine what it was like? Get, let's get everybody organized in faith groups now. Okay, you want to lead a faith group? You want to, lead, you want to be a shepherd? Okay, what are you, what are you going to do? You can do, this, you can do the singing? You can lead singing? Okay, let's get organized here. No, it was completely out of control. You can't control the Holy Spirit. You can't organize the Holy Spirit. Let Him work. Unleash Him. Let Him go. Let Him work. Let Him show you how God works. I mean, that's exciting. But we want to put God in a box and we want to, you know, organize and everything. The whole point of this series, guys, is we've got to open our minds and open our hearts to what God can do on your college campus, on your high school campus. In your neighborhood. What can God do? If you will believe and if you will unleash the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this in the coming weeks. But it took all day to baptize all those people. Would you stay here all day? Some of you got to go. You're looking at your watch. It's time to go. This is significant. And from this group, the world... The known world in the first and second century was reached. What's happened in our day? Amazing things. I want to give you a little, watch this video about an update of what's happening to our brothers and sisters in Abidjan so you can pray for them. Watch this. It's early Friday in Abidjan and the Ivory Coast, and the political situation is deteriorating rapidly. Two men are claiming to be president. In the recent election, the UN and the international community believe that Alisson Ouattara won the election, but current president Laurent Gbagbo refuses to leave. The UN has 12,000 troops in the country, but there is no way they can keep the peace forever. The Ivory Coast suffered through a civil war in 2002, and it seems the same forces are gathering for war again. Right now in Abidjan, work has stopped. 
The airport is on the verge of shutting down. Fighting has broken out in the west of the country, as well as in Abidjan, in a neighborhood, a large neighborhood called Abobo. We have almost 2,000 disciples in Abidjan, of whom about 300 live in Abobo. We spoke to Francis Dassé, the lead evangelist in Abidjan, and asked if they planned to evacuate the disciples from Abobo. Yeah, you want to evacuate, but it's impossible because of, uh, uh, we have a soldier. You can uh, hear the rest of the story on, on one of our websites, Hot News, but essentially what's happening is the city is gripped with civil war. And the country is gripped with civil war. We got 2,000 2, members that are a part of our church, our family of churches there in Abidjan. Many of them are seeking refuge in other nations. The banks are closed, the supermarkets are closed, all telecommunications are down. It's, it's mayhem. So I want to encourage you, this is much bigger than you and your lunch appointment this afternoon, what God is trying to do. Our church is on the verge and can have the opportunity to reach thousands. But we've got to change the way we look at things. And we've got to change the way we pray. Instead of praying these little prayers, we need to pray big prayers. And we need to wait for those answers and be ready for those answers when God moves. So I want to encourage you, uh, give you some action items for this week. I want to encourage you, you know, this precious Bible that you have, read it. Find it in your house if you're visiting here with us. Read Acts 1 and 2. We're going to pick up where we left off next week to see how our brothers and sisters continue to have the focus of what Jesus' mission and scope was. It was simple. It wasn't complicated. But I want to encourage you to read Acts 1 and 2 and pray for God to open your mind and your heart to the scope of how He wants to use your life. And I want to encourage you to pray for our brothers and sisters in Abidjan, in the Middle East, and in Mexico, because it is serious. We take for granted the peace that we have here. And stay informed about how we can help them. Uh, and if you're visiting here, I want to encourage you to study, to, to, to take the decision to study the Bible with someone who invited you to church. We have a series of Bible studies that we do with people that are getting to know, you know what we're about. And it is all about getting right with God, but it's also coming to know God. We invite you to do those Bible studies with someone here from the church. And in closing, this is how it all started. And we need to make sure that it continues. And we're grateful that God has given us men like William Tyndale to give us the Bible and bring it back so we can read it. But one of the things that the church did shortly after those 3,000 were baptized, look at their daily life. Every day they continue to meet together, not on Sunday, not on Wednesday, every day. Are you ready to get together tomorrow? Let's all come back here tomorrow. Some of you are like, one day a week is enough. Mm. I hope God will help change your scope. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts, no building, places where people came together. And they broke bread together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Right now we're going to celebrate the communion, something that they did. They remembered Jesus. They remembered His sacrifice. 
the blood that was shed so that you could be here today. So that you could get right with God. Without Jesus, without His body and blood being offered up and without the resurrection, you could never change. So right now, let's pray for the communion. Father, we thank You that we can celebrate in this way and we're thankful for Your Word. God, thank You that we have Your Word. We thank You that we can remember Jesus in this way, the way He taught us to remember Him.